I'm Mimi Wagner. Welcome to the best of Simply Money. Each week we put together some of our favorite segments from the 55 Karacy radio show exclusively for this podcast. This week, Steve and I check up on local companies, Procter & Gamble, Kroger, General Electric, and Fifth Third Bank, and discuss a new initiative encouraging your teens to trade stocks and how you can help them become long-term smart investors. Brian James, the CFP and regular on the Simply Money show, joins me to talk about how to successfully plan for an early retirement. I also interview Eric Redfield, owner of Camparoso, about handling the economic challenges facing restaurants right now. The stock market, well, you know, it's like a roller coaster sometimes, up and down. But how are locals? Local companies, Procter & Gamble, Kroger, General Electric, and Fifth Third, how are they doing? You're listening to Simply Money tonight. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. You know, Steve, we don't focus usually on individual stocks, but I think there's a bigger picture that we're painting when we look at how these individual companies are doing right now. Well, you know, Cincinnati's always had some really, really good, strong local companies. I mean, Kroger, Procter & Gamble, GE. Um, yeah, yeah, just go down down the list. And, and you know, in the past year, it has been a monster roller coaster for all of the big indexes. I, I, I just have to say one thing about indexes. Everybody, everybody tracks the Dow. What's the market doing? They're talking about the Dow. The Dow Jones uh, average is only 30 stocks. Yes. You know, so if you have one or two of them, you know, go in the tank, it looks like the market's down. And yet your portfolio, your your investments, your IRA may be doing just fine or vice versa. So we, we like to look at the S&P 500, the Standard & Poor's 500, which is the 500 largest U- U.S. companies. And that's up 10% year to date. Um, what you're seeing on, on financial news websites sometimes looks at that, sometimes it doesn't. But you know, let's talk about Kroger a little, Amy. They're doing great. Yeah. So year to date, the grocer is up about 14 percent. Um, and, and I think this is interesting, too. And not that this is like a bellwether of any sorts, but Kroger's one of 47 stocks owned by Warren Buffett. And, you know, Steve, you got to think about it from the perspective of the leadership of that company. And on the day when you find out that Warren Buffett has invested in your company, you know, there's high fives all around in that conference room because sure. it's like we made it. Like if Warren Buffett, like the investors, the Oracle of Omaha, right, has decided to set his sights on us, we must be doing something right. So I think that's kind of a a badge of honor for Kroger, one of less than 50 stocks that Warren Buffett has said, I see Yeah, he doesn't own a lot. Yeah. 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 I mean, the guy's got a heck of a track record and, you know, people are always sniping at him. Well, he's not as good as he used to be. He's still pretty darn good. I, I mean, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, Kroger's one of the, well, I think it's the biggest public employer in Cincinnati, 15,000 employees. I mean, yeah. it's a huge company. Their their profits are up quite a bit. Same store sales growth, 14% in 2020. Uh, operating profit jumped 35% last year. I, I mean, a pandemic. And you tend to see this during times of crisis. You always need food. You always need bread, milk, you know, that that kind of stuff. And, and people shopped at Kroger, and they made it they made it easy with ClickList. I mean, they were right on the ball with that. So when people were nervous about getting out, walking into stores even with a mask, they had a solution, and they made money with their solution. Good job, Kroger. 
Well, and two, though, you have to look at Kroger last year, right? We were all flocking to the stores to get the toilet paper and the hand sanitizer. But how do they pivot moving forward, right? Yeah. How do they keep us coming in? How do they keep us going back to the digital click listing? And where they're putting their money is their home chef sales, those home kits that when you walk in the door, it's like, you know, restaurant quality meals. Everything's chopped up for you already. You kind of just throw it together and voila, you have a meal. I think it's so funny, Steve, because I remember back and this was, oh, my goodness, maybe 50, well, probably maybe even 20 years ago, I had a friend who worked at Chiquita and he called me one night and he said, this is Amy, this is the craziest thing. He said, listen to what we're talking about doing. We're talking about selling people fruit that is already cut up and charging <laughs> them more for it. The same fruit, charging them more for it than we would the fruit that they can buy themselves and cut up. And I said, what idiots? Who would pay more money? <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you right now. I'm the first in line with all yeah. the pre-cut up stuff. Yeah. And I think that's just where we kind of are uh, now. Don't, We're so busy. There's so much going on. If you make it more convenient for me, I will pay a little Don't more. underestimate the laziness of Americans. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's be serious. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's uh, sure you, you can you can research recipes. You can go buy this, that and the other thing, cut it up, spend an hour and make Things a gorgeous meal or just walk in, pay a little bit extra and they've got it all portioned out for you. Um, I get why this is working. And, and you know, the next generation, uh, you know, they, they, they usually, especially if both the, uh, spouses work, time is everything. I, I mean, if you've got kids, and I know you do, time is your most valuable asset. It if is. somebody can save you a little bit of time and trouble, it's worth looking into. So good, good for Kroger. Yeah, hey. Kroger faring well. Procter & Gamble. Yeah. You know, kind of another pandemic darling. Uh, we're not saying, listen, there's there's nothing wrong with uh, Procter & Gamble whatsoever. But when you look at the numbers, at least year to date, they've kind of flatlined. Yeah, I, I, I guess. But, you know, keep in mind, a, a year or so ago, that was an $85 stock. And then, boom, it just, yeah. you know, went up to 140 or so, fueled in part by the pandemic. I mean, what was the first thing people started hoarding when 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 this all hit the fan, right? Toilet paper, Toilet hand paper. sanitizer, all yeah, the it, things that they make. Everything Procter and Gamble makes. So yeah. yeah, you know, I I people are saying it's flatlined, it's going nowhere, it's in the you know one thirty five to, to one thirty eight range. Yeah, but it made a heck of a move about a year mm -hmm. ago. So you know, th this is not bad. And, and you know, I'm also seeing a lot of people talk about well, you know, that board member Nelson Pels, he sold a big chunk. Yeah, th this guy, he, he's the guy that tried uh, basically a hostile takeover of Procter & Gamble. He didn't like the way it was being run, wanted to get on the board, sh uh, shake things up, change things around. Um, he sold off 2.7 million shares, uh, I think it was a week or two ago, $370 million worth of stock. He still has 5.7 million shares. He had a yeah. billion dollars worth of P&G. So next time you look at your, you know, a couple hundred shares, there are a lot of people with a whole lot more money. And the fact that he sold that much is almost petty change for this guy. So yeah, don't, I mean, don't read too much into that. He's still sitting on, I think, $700 million <laughs> worth. Of, you know, like 
it's not like he's taken all of his chips off the table because he yeah. thinks that's going that ship's going down. Procter no, Gamble not no. going down whatsoever. Good company. You know, I think there's some companies, Steve, who over the past year, like it's just been so tough. You kind of want to throw out last year's numbers because yeah. they're such an outlier. I wonder if Procter and Gamble kind of wants to throw out last year's numbers as well because there's such a high standard now. I mean, the bar is when you have everyone flocking to Procter and right. Gamble products. How do you, when you report earnings to your investors, say? We're going to continue to grow, right? Well, that, that's, yeah, a that's, a, that's a really good point because things were so weird in, in 2020. You know, the lockdown basically initiated an, an automatic recession. I, I mean, when you lock yeah. down an economy, um, companies are, you know, they're kind of shut down and things have changed. And now we're trying to open back up. And that's, you know, it fits and starts. It, it's I think it's tougher to reopen than it is to, to shut down an economy. But, yeah, the year-over-year numbers, that's what the investors always home in on. So, you know, right now we're starting to get these fantastic numbers from a lot of companies of how much better they're doing over a year ago. Well, yeah, that's because of all this pent-up demand. That's everybody finally getting out and doing stuff, getting back to normal. What's it going to be like when we get back to real normal, you know, hopefully sooner than later? But like you said, where can they go from here? We're going to – it's inevitable. We're we're going to see a little leveling off of earnings and sales growth, and we'll see how investors take that. You're listening to Simple Money tonight here on 55KRC as we break down – the local companies, the hometown favorites, and how they're doing. And Steve, we need to mention Fifth Third Bank among these because they're one of the best-performing local stocks right now, up 50% year-to-date. Yeah, and, and banking stocks in general are doing well. And, and you know why, Amy? It's it's basically because investors just assumed, okay, pandemic, shut down the economy. People aren't going to be able to make their car car payments. There are going to be a lot of layoffs. It's going to be just an absolute mess. And all of these banks are going to have bad loans. Guess what? It didn't happen like that. Yeah, there were some, there were some issues, but for the most part, banks had sufficient reserves. They they didn't see the uh, the negative numbers and bad loans that they uh, had kind of planned on. And because of that, the stocks of a number uh, of banks are are just doing phenomenal. Fifth Fifth Third, um, thirty two billion dollars poured into um, just in general broad financial stocks this year. Yeah. It it just goes to show, right? Investors are flocking to that place because you are more and more confident in the banking system, but also the fact that there's going to be more money out there flowing through the system. And Steve, I think, you know, banks have learned their lesson. They learned it the hard way, 2007, 2008. When we came into this pandemic, they, they put a ton of money aside expecting those loan losses. Yeah. They shored up big time. And I know Fifth Third was at the top of that list. Thank goodness they didn't need that money, but they were in a good position even if they did. So coming out of this, they're fundamentally incredibly sound. I, I, I agree. And I, I think for some banks, it was kicking and screaming getting to that point. But yes. you know, overall, uh, we've seen banks across the board um, shore up reserves and, and really crack down on lending standards. I mean, that was the, the big gripe in 2008 is, you know, if you had a pulse, you, you could get a loan for whatever you wanted. Um, not the case anymore. They really haven't loosened up much at all on, on lending standards. And that's a good thing. That's yeah. a good thing in the long run for banks. Yeah, you know, what? another company that that's um, really shown a, a pretty neat turnaround is General Electric. I, I mean, they had their problems and, and it's nice to see their numbers starting to come back. 
I think problems might even be an understatement here, right? I mean, it seems like GE might be on board the Titanic for a while there. They're up, though, 22% year-to-date. I think a lot of people have a lot of confidence in CEO Larry Culp and what his plan is, uh, streamlining the business, becoming leaner, meaner, and also paying down a lot of debt. You know, their earnings coming back, a lot of times what they're looking at is the debt service that they've been able uh, to have there at GE, and, you know, that seems to be bringing a lot of confidence to that company. Oh, yeah. They've been paying down debt very aggressively. And, and you know, the, the, the biggest problem with General Electric, and I, I shouldn't say problem, but it was so huge. It, it's like trying to turn a super tanker around. Yeah. You're not going to turn on a dime. It takes a while. They had to they had to sell off a whole bunch of their subsidiaries and, and you know, reevaluate what their core business actually is. And, and he's doing he's doing a fantastic job. And, and the stock is is showing the results of that. Uh, Amy, what worries me locally, though, is one of their um, uh, one of their more struggling units is GE Aviation. And, and I, I don't think that's any fault of GE. It's just, you know, as we're reopening the economy, airlines are starting to add flights, but they're, you know, they're nervous about how strong will the company back be to the airline industry and they're taking their airplanes that they had taken offline putting them back in service before they go out and buy new airplanes and obviously if you're selling jet engines you need new airplanes to get bought so you know it's it's going to take a little while i think for the airline industry to have the confidence that people are back flying they're flying more than ever i think it'll happen but there's going to be a lag i think on on getting the contracts for ge aviation i i, I mean that that uh, unit uh, was down first quarter 28% on profits over GE's overall profits of being down 12%. So a little bit of a drag, a little bit of a concern. I'm not worried about it. I think it'll be fine in the long run. They're, they seem to have good leadership there now. Agree. And I think that, you know, we're we're traveling here domestically in the U.S. again, but there's so many countries still lagging yeah. behind, still on lockdown. It's going to take a while before the global economy, which GE had the global aviation presence, is back out there and the demand is up again. Here's a Simply Money point. Local companies, they're performing relatively well as our broad economy bounces back from the uh, pandemic. Great news there. All right, where could this one go wrong? Fidelity is going to issue debit cards and offer investing and savings accounts to 13 to 17-year-old kids whose parents or guardians also invest with the firm. I don't even know where to go with this, Steve. Where do you start? (laughs) I I honestly, I thought this was a joke when I I, I first saw this article. But Fidelity, respected company, they're allowing kids 13 to 17 to open up accounts with their parents' approval. Obviously, the parents are going to be involved in every single one of these decisions, right? Because what 13 or 17-year-old would ever think of forging their parents' names? Oh, my goodness. There's a reason you have to be 18 years old to buy stock. I I, I mean, in most states. You know? Fidelity's trying to become kind of, a, you know, a lifelong whatever partner with people in investing, but I'm not sure lifelong needs to start at 13 years old. I've got a 15 year old and she's a smart kid. She makes straight A's, but I don't know that she should be picking stocks right now. <laughs> and I think part of what it would be so attractive about this is actual stock picking right yeah. at this age who's gonna you know how can they make the most money they're gonna let you put what 30 dollars thirty thousand dollars into this account now they are saying listen there's no options trading there's no trading on margins or anything like that okay that's good oh, good yeah that'll, <laughs> that, that'll eliminate the issues oh my goodness 
Yes. But the parents apparently have to open the accounts. Once opened, though, it's fully transferred to your teenager uh, who can then take it and begin to execute trades from there. Yeah. And and the parent can opt in or not opt in to be notified of the trades. So, I mean, where do you even start with something like this? So, you know, all right, the parent has to open up the account. Well, what kid would not think of, you know, I really want to do this and I don't want to bug mom and dad. So maybe I'll just make up. I know what their information is. Or I, I'll, borrow, I'll borrow mom's driver's license. You know, that, that, that'll that get the account open. I, this really, really scares me. I mean, we're joking about it, but this really, really scares me. Never mind the fact that, okay, these are no commission trades, which, okay, I suppose that's all right. But, you know, still, why why are there no fees being paid? Where is Fidelity making their money? Because of payment for order flow. We've talked about this in the past, but it's basically some company somewhere that's not Fidelity necessarily is going to go ahead and execute the order, and they're going to pay Fidelity for the right to do so. That money comes from somewhere. Well, obviously, it comes out of the investor's pocket. They just don't see it as a commission. There's a lot of really and things that make me feel kind of semi, you know, uncomfortable about yeah. this. But it's teaching the kids to trade. Are they going to buy a good, safe, long-term investment? Are they going to do it as a Roth or, or something, you know, for their retirement? No, no. They're they're going to buy and sell. They're going to try to make a quick buck. And, and, you know, you and I both know what happens when you try to jump in and out on a regular basis. At some point, you're going to get fried. Well, it's not investing at that point, right? It's gambling. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC. Fidelity now offering uh, the ability to your child to trade if they're between the ages of 13 and 17 years old. So too young to trade normally. You put your name on the account. You know, Steve, I think there are some cases where this would be okay. And I think about a friend of mine, Eric. I used to work at Channel 5 with him. He and his dad sat down hand in hand, researched companies together uh, and invested in a handful of companies when he was probably in middle school. And he actually was able to pay a good portion of his college based off of, yes, yes. And then he has become since then an incredibly smart investor. He has learned diversification through the years, right? But he started at the kitchen table side by side with his dad, tracking companies, researching companies, not not the get rich quick, what's the next Apple kind of a thing, but what's the safest bet for me? Those kinds of conversations, I think, when you're sitting down with your child, okay, then then I'm okay with this. Oh, no, that, that's a great, healthy family. I'm with you 100% on that. Um, let me tell you another story. How, how, about, how about the family that never talked about money because there wasn't any, and mom and dad always played the lottery because that was the only way they were going to get anywhere, and, and the kid doesn't know the first thing about what a stock is until he's out of college. That's my story. So if I if I had access to, you know, a few thousand dollars and was able to trade stock when I was in high school, I was not exactly making the best, smartest, long-term decisions. You mean Young Pro was yeah, not oh the goodness. savviest the, stock picker? I hope the before picture doesn't get out there because it was different than the after picture. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. You know, you know but, you know, I, I think I was fairly typical. And, and they don't – this is something I know Ed Fink, Nathan Backrack, always pounded uh, on and, and I think really made some inroads in Cincinnati – you need to teach this stuff in schools yeah. also because it doesn't happen with with families in a lot of cases. I think your story is the exception. But, you know, if a school is not going to teach you what a stock is, if they're not going to teach you investments, the differences between individual stocks and mutual funds, um, but we're going to let the kids trade 
yeah. as their first experience. You know, I, I would love to see a good program in every school in the country teaching not just, you know, how to balance a checkbook, but, you know, what a 401k is, how dollar cost averaging works. These are a lot more important in my world than, than you know, um, uh, calculus or something like that. That, yeah, if you need it for a future career, fantastic, but we need these basic skills first. Um, it, it would be helpful to have that before we start spending our money on letting our kids trade stocks. I have this conversation with my daughter all the time. She's in geometry and she'll say, Mom, when am I going to use this? And uh, quite yeah. honestly, yeah. I have not ever ever used geometry since the day I put down my pencil from geometry class. Yet how many times since then have I had to make a financial decision? And yep. I never had a financial class when I was in school, right? Not exactly. before college. So I think it's critical that if, you know, have these conversations with your kids, figure out what they're learning before you jump into something like this option that Fidelity has out there. Here's the Simply Money point. Talk to your kids about emergency funds, what compound interest is and how it works and the difference between stocks and mutual funds before you jump into something like this. Fans are ready to return to Great American Ballpark in full force. As those floodgates open up on ticket supply, what's going to happen? Well, prices are dropping. Joining me tonight, Brian James, certified financial planner on the Allworth team, a regular here on the show. Uh, Brian, are you guys big baseball fans? Are you going to get back to the ballpark? You know, I got to tell you, Amy, as we were researching the story and just kind of getting ready, I found myself daydreaming an awful lot because we've been busy with the end of the school year and the weather yeah. has still been kind of awful. But the more we were reading through what's coming and that things are getting back to normal and the Reds are actually doing something this year. Yeah, I'm excited. It's going to be fun to get back down there and get things back to normal and, and see some see him play some small ball for once. Well, and, you know, you, when we were at, you know, what, 20 percent, 25 percent capacity and then half capacity, uh, you know, people it, it was crazy to see the people in the stands in those little pods um, kind of sitting together. Now, when we go back to regular capacity, obviously, there's more tickets and this is simply supply and demand. Right. What we saw before field box tickets between the bases and foul pole, sixty eight dollars. Um, Topper of the moon deck, forty five dollars in the outfield mezzanine at forty two. These are these are when we were kind of at the lower capacity. Um, which we're still at, I think, isn't that through the beginning of June, Brian? June 2nd. June 2nd, the Reds go to full capacity and, as a bonus, no masks anymore. So prior yes. to that, it was 40%. They, they went to 40% on April 30th. And, yeah, you're right. There, there was its demand driving it. So, uh, interestingly, they were averaging about 11,700, which had them in ninth place across the league. Uh, in terms of attendance, taking into account the the capacity issues too, different capacities, different stadiums, and all that stuff. But regardless, June second, which is just a few weeks away, full capacity, no masks, and let's cheer on our red legs through the end of the year. Absolutely. The tickets have been, yeah, they've been priced through through dynamic pricing. So they they've still been using that dynamic pricing thing that's been in place for eight or nine years. So I don't know whether they took capacity in, in, out of the algorithm or what, but uh, the the demand has been there to support them. Well, we did the research for you, and we think there are some deals out there. Um, the first rows of mid-value ticket areas, so the field box area, the moon deck, the mezzanine, um, those haven't been scooped up a lot by the season ticket holders yet, and they're reselling on MLB Ballpark app. And you can get those at much cheaper prices uh, after June 2nd than you could before. So when do you want to retire? This is one of the biggest questions I think many of us grapple with. And, you know, Brian, on a Monday when you get out of bed, it might be something that some people are counting to how many more Mondays do I have to do this? Um, some say you want to work forever. Some of you want out as soon as possible. I'm sure, though, that during this time, Brian, that's been so weird, you're getting calls from people who are burned out, uncertain about the future. What, what are you hearing from people? 
That, and that's exactly what I'm hearing. So what were, you know, people that we had set up a financial plan for maybe two, three years ago, and they were going to hang on another five years from that, which would be, you know, two, three years from now, are now calling and saying, hey, you know what, we were in pretty good shape a couple of years ago. Maybe I had in my head that I wanted to get my assets to a certain dollar amount or something. But you know what, I don't really care anymore. Uh, because we're in a new world now. Obviously, we all learned how to operate differently. Uh, you know, even how we do this radio show, it's all different than sure. was prior to a year ago. You know, I'm in my closet uh, and, at home right now. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes <laughs> I'm at home. Sometimes I'm in the office. Well, we're all kind of making it up as we go a little bit. But, uh, you know, I, I think people have now looked at that and said, you know what, now that they're going to roll us back into the office, I just can't get back into that groove. I liked what I It was OK working at home, but I'm just not going to be able to start it over again. So very much so people's expectations are changing in terms of what they want, what they what they want to do you know, years ago versus what they want right now. Even in certain sectors of the workforce, like teachers, right? There's a lot of teachers out there who got in this because they love that face-to-face interaction with students. And then this year have been forced to go all virtual or they have some students who are still going virtual. And so you have to teach the kids in front of you and virtual at the same time. And I know teachers who had not planned to retire who are kind of just done with it. They don't, they don't love this aspect of it. You know, police officers, it's, it's such a tough environment right now for them. We've got many of them coming into ours saying, okay, how soon can I get out? Uh, and, and that's happening across the country. So I think there's certain certain careers uh, where people are ready to just jump out. And I just think people as a whole, um, it's been such a weird time, are ready. You think you're ready to leave. And, and there's a financial consideration here. But beyond that, how much of your identity is wrapped up in that job. Brian, you and I have both seen this where someone identifies so strongly uh, with with that job title, with what that makes them be, um, that looking into retirement, wading into that place where they're no longer defined by that is very scary. It is. And that's really something everybody fixates on the financial side of things, right? I can't retire until I know whether I have enough money. And most people don't put enough energy into that to begin with, which is job security for me. But um, until they get to the point where, you know, uh, they, where, where they've figured out the dollars, how am I going to pay the bills? Uh, the next thing you need to think about, and it's a very quick next thing, is how am I going to spend my time? You know, the, the example I always use with my clients who are about to retire is, is picture it's Tuesday morning, it's 10 o'clock, you've had four cups of coffee, and you and your spouse are staring at each other from either end of the couch. What are you going to do that day and then the next day and so forth? So turning off the faucet after you have spent the last three or four decades just busting it and growing a nest egg is very hard to do. People who uh, people who listen to this radio show, if you're still listening to us, then you are probably in decent financial shape. People who seek out financial education tend to be all right, um, but uh, they also tend to work too long, to be quite blunt, because they never identify the point at which they could go. And so that's an important thing to figure out, not only the financial stuff, but the next thing that will terrify you, which is that Tuesday morning, oh my gosh, what am I going to do today and the rest of my life? Well, I always giggle the stories about one person retires first and they kind of get their groove on at home and they've got their things that they do and they go to the gym and they hang out with their friends and they do lunch, blah, blah, blah. And then the other one retires and totally screws up the mojo at home. And, and so this is why I think conversations about retirement and to your point, that random Tuesday at 10 o'clock, if you're both staring at each other thinking, first of all, I cannot handle another day of just looking at this person. What happens next? Is is one of you going to go play tennis? Is one of you going to go for a walk? Is the other one going to go uh, watch the grandkids or volunteer at something? You really have to have these conversations as a couple. You have to think through it as an individual. And you can have all the money in the world in your bank account and retirement not be a good one for you because you haven't thought through these things. 
That's right. Money can't buy happiness. I've got just as many clients who have multiple millions of dollars uh, who are unhappy as I do people who only maybe have a couple hundred thousand who uh, who are just as happy as a bug in a rug because they had those conversations. They decided, here's what I'm retiring to versus people who only worry about retiring away from something. That is a big, challenging thing. Money does not put in place. Uh, it doesn't remove every stress you'll ever have. It doesn't put uh, instant happiness into place when you retire. Uh, it can be a very, it, and it can be very stressful. It puts strains on marriages. Fine, we all know that financial uh, issues uh, strain marriages. But sometimes, honestly, when the finances are in great shape and you've got all the options in the world, we simply haven't spent enough time as married people talking to each other about what that really means. So, what are we going to do? Are we going to sit around and wait for the kids to call, or are we going to go, uh, you know, travel and go do things that we want to do, or volunteer, or whatever? But those are. It's important to spend as much time on that as you do worrying about the money side of things. And how many times do you get people in the office and the first time you bring up, okay, what does retirement look look like for you guys? They both answer at the same time two very different things. You or know? they don't answer at all and they just look at each other and there's an awkward <laughs> pause. But yes. again, that keeps me employed. No idea. Yes, exactly. Right. You know, and of course there's things like healthcare and how are we going to pay for that? There's There are a lot of financial considerations as part of that. One of the things that we've talked about for years here on the show, though, is, you know, how much vacation time do you have? If you've got two weeks or a month, can you put it all together as a chunk of time and consider that a test retirement? You maybe, though, had a test retirement over the course of the pandemic. I mean, maybe you're both working from home and you're, you're both there all the time, if that did not work out well, uh, you're going to have to rethink something. So maybe in, in that sense, this past year has kind of been a blessing to a lot of people of as you were kind of forced into a, a test retirement. So uh, a lot of things to think through as you look at retirements and they, not, they aren't necessarily all financial. Here's the Simply Money point. Planning for life and retirement, just as important as planning financially for retirement. There are so many businesses that are now adjusting to the new normal. What does this look like now? One of those, Camparosa, which has the best pizza in the world, by the way, in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky. Joining us tonight, the owner, Eric Redfield. Eric, first of all, congrats to you guys. Didn't you just get an award about um, the best pizza in the entire state of Kentucky? Yeah, we did. We were uh, we were very surprised. Um we were uh, recognized in Food and Wine Magazine's Best Pizza in Every State edition for April, and uh, we were recognized. And uh, to be such a young pizzeria, uh, we were just flattered with with, uh, with that recognition. Well, congratulations to you. And you did mention that you're a young pizzeria. You guys have been around for, what, just a few years now? We've been around for uh, four years on April the 6th. And a global pandemic in the midst of that. Um, talk about how that changed things for you guys last year. You didn't even do carryout before that, right? We did not. This uh, this pandemic hit. We were really in our infancy when that happened. We were a little over two and a half years old. Um, and the pandemic hit. Uh, we... Um, have a, a pretty small repurposed gas station restaurant. So uh, we were dining only and the pandemic hit, we were shut down and we had to very, very quickly move to a, uh, a takeout only model within days. So we didn't have time for a, a proof of concept um, or, or best practices, exercises, anything like that. We had to move very quickly to a, to a takeout only model, uh, which I think has helped us now transition into where we are currently with a combination of dining and takeout. I know so many restaurants, Eric, last year when they had to make that switch over to purely takeout so quickly, had to lose so much staff. How did that affect your staffing levels levels, and what you guys were able to do there? Well, we have uh, uh, one of our 
great assets is our staff, and we have very little turnover. I think uh, turnover in restaurants are about 75%. We have less than 10% at Camp Rosso, so that really helped. And during the takeout-only model, I think we went down from 49 uh, employees to 33, and there are several. The, the serving staff obviously had to be reduced, but we were able to retain uh, most of our staff. And currently, uh, we have uh, – I know there's a big labor crunch, and that's the big buzz right now, but we um, – we don't have anyone on unemployment, and we are fully staffed. So we've been able to really sustain that throughout uh, this pandemic. We offer um, group health, vision, dental, and a 401K program at Camp Rosso, and we have not had to take anyone off any of those programs throughout this whole um, whole pandemic. Eric, you mentioned those benefits, and I think you guys are not probably the norm in that industry, but we're hearing from more and more restaurants that are saying we cannot attract uh, anybody to who wants to come in and work here. So I wonder if you're not leading the way uh, in others having to kind of step up to that standard that you guys are setting. I think so. I think when we looked at the approach that we were going to take, and there are two schools of thought, conventionalism, really says to, to put a freeze on spending. Uh, but we have things that I think set up very well for us with our business model, with our staffing, with the community, with where we were located, that we decided very early on to invest um, back into you know the community, to our business, and most importantly, we reinvested into our employees. And I do think that's helped with our retention and with, uh, and, and that shows through right at the table and right to uh, to our customer. So I do think that that is something that you really need to look at. It does cost some some wage inflation, obviously, because um, you're going to have to give more benefits and um, pay a little more and create that type of environment to retain those good employees. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55 KRC. Eric Radfield is joining us. He's the owner of Camparoso Pizza in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky. If you've never been there, a great place. You're going to want to try it out. You know, you're talking about Eric having to play, pay employees more to keep them along. At the same time, though, we've been talking about inflation a lot on this show. I'm imagining that some of the ingredients and things like that that you used to get, like, you're seeing inflation there, too. Across the board, and I think we're getting hit sooner than than most. I mean, if you look at the all, all items index in the consumer price index, it's up 4.2 percent over the last 12 yep. months. That's the largest 12 month increase since 2008. And if you look at that, if you want to look at it anecdotally in the restaurant industry, so we're paying more in labor. Uh, the supply chain has been totally disrupted because getting product from distributor to the end user has gone up exponentially. Fuel costs are up 49%. It costs more to get that here. You know, meat or uh, beef and chicken prices are at historic highs. So all of that is, is trickles down to the restaurant industry. And restaurants have a very hard time keeping pace with that. So there's no way that I can uh, increase my prices to keep pace with what my, you know, uh, accounts, uh, my accounts payable are. So it's, 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 a tough, it's a tough time right now. I think that um, with this industry, it's going to be years before you really see the total impact of what this last year and a half had on, on the restaurant industry. One of the things, Eric, that I think you did so well through this, and I, you know, I follow Camparoso on social media, you were, were very transparent about what you were going through, that you guys were trying to keep as many people on staff as possible, uh, that you had kind of leaned into that, uh, you know, carry out model as, as much as you could, you know, as you're going, as you're dealing with inflation and things like that, uh, do you, I mean, I don't, there are crowds all over outside your restaurant. I, I don't think that anyone's uh, turning away as the result of any of this. You're, you're, I think that, um, right. Community involvement is, is so important. So the community around us has been 
Um, just fantastic. I mean, their their support is unbelievable. When we were takeout only, uh, just the generous tipping that they were doing to our employees, and now just coming out, like you mentioned, in droves to to, to support us. Um, and you just you don't do it without that, right? If we don't have customers, we're not in business. So they, uh, the community has been has been fantastic, and I think it all just it all works hand in hand. All the things that we tried to do. Uh, during the the, uh, the onset of the pandemic and throughout, we have invested back into um, our, like I mentioned, the community and our people and our facilities. We put a, a very very nice custom made tent outside. We put heat and enclosed our patio and made people feel safe and secure uh, while still being able to get out and, and enjoy time away. Is there anything that's keeping you up at night at this point, or do you feel like okay, you're you've seen the worst of this and you've come out on the other side? You know, I'm I'm very I'm not risk averse, so very little keeps me up at night. Um, We did this, my wife and I did this uh, in retirement. So Amy and I both uh, knew what we were getting into. We both came from the corporate world, and you know, you just have to be adaptable. Uh, You know, we are we we, we've adapted to to everything that has has been thrown our way, and we will just kind of continue to try to look look forward and keep keep doing our thing. You know, and I know that you've been in, and we've talked several times. You know, there are kind of four key components that, that drive us. It's faith, hard work, education, and service. And if we continue to aggressively look at those things, you know, we sleep well at night. You do it all so well. For anyone who's never checked out um, Camparosa before, great place. And for restaurant owners who are listening tonight and small business owners, so many takeaways about being adaptable and how truly prioritizing your staff can pay off in the end. You've been listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC, the talk station. You've been listening to the best of Simply Money. Now, if you could do us a favor, send the show to a friend if you think they may benefit from it as well. At Allworth Financial, we help you retire better.